You're listening to the Ministry of Grace View Church. In South Haven, Mississippi. On graceviewchurch.org. Let's hear from Pastor Chris. Some difficult stuff today in the book of Genesis. We're actually going through Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, but as we go through there, it talks about these stories in the Old Testament. So we have to go back there to find out what it means so that we can understand Hebrews. So we're in Genesis chapter 5 today. Because you know in the beginning... God created them male and female. Let's just start out by saying all the fathers I know are men. (laughs) Let's just assume we know what a man is. The pulpit is not a place for politics. The pulpit is a place for religion, true religion, specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if I were only to tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'd be working with about 10 or 15% of the Bible. I know that sounds weird. It all cumulatively comes to the gospel, but the whole Bible is not stating the gospel. And so in this old tradition of Presbyterianism that goes back all these hundreds of years, we say this. In the pulpit, you preach the full knowledge of God. The gospel is the center of everything we do, but the full knowledge of God goes to things like in the beginning, God created them male and female. That started the whole ball rolling. You remember he created Adam first, but Adam was insufficient in himself. He walked with God. It was before there was sin and he still was not sufficient in and of himself. God did not create him to walk the world himself. He created all the other animals first. The highest thing he created was man because man was created in his own image and likeness. But still at the same time, all the animals had a partner and he did not have one, even though he was walking with God. You know that in our tradition, we don't have a rule that says even a minister must be married, but we prefer it Because there's a lot of problems that happen in life that can be cured by having a good companion and a good wife to walk that walk along with you. Is that true? So, in this church, in this old Christian theology, in the old rugged faith of Christianity, it is not offensive to be a man. We expect our men to be men. You know, many times I've been in conversations with guys, and we have this inferiority complex to the greatest generation. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say the greatest generation? They're the ones that fought all of our world wars, and they died, and they bled, and they came back missing arms and legs, but they went out and fought the battle because it had to be done that we can have all the blessings that we have today that many people are, frankly, interested in taking away. But... They were the greatest, and we can never be them, but we would really like to be just a good generation if we could reach that. Uh, In talking with the women of this congregation, you're comfortable being women, and it is awesome. You understand that women are not inferior to men in the Bible. Men and women, it says God created man, male and female. They are required for each other, but they're not identical, and they're not identical on purpose. God was not making a mistake. There are glories of each one and they come together in a blessed union. And you know what? Not a single generation in human history would have survived if some men and women had not gotten together. Can I get an amen? Amen. As we go through that, there's this interesting guy, Lamech. Now, a lot of us would think to ourselves, man, Lamech was a man's man's man. When we get to Lamech, 
there's a change in everything that happens in the Bible. Even with, Cain, even with Cain and Abel, we didn't get a personality analysis. In Lamech, the Bible stops and God stops on purpose to give us a look at Lamech. In chapter 5, it's talking about the descendants that go down to Noah. And it talks about all their ages and stuff like that. And then it gets to verse 28. And it says, when Lamech lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died, and Noah was 500 years old. First of all, when it goes through these dates and it goes through these ages and it goes through all of these things, it can start to seem a little bit fantastic with us. It can be easy to slide into that thing of maybe this is a mythology or talking about some strange ages. And the Bible takes these ages incredibly seriously, so much so that it goes through every one of these people and says the, day, the age they were born and the age they had their children and the age that they lived to. Right now, most of you in here are probably going to live to be about 100, but you have to remember that 100 years ago, that sounded crazy. That sounded space age. I remember when if I knew an 80-year-old guy, that was like one in a million, right? When I was a kid. Now we all get to our 80s. Hopefully we'll get farther. Women live longer, but at this time in history, everybody lived longer. And it even talks about Lamech's father, Methuselah, the most famous old dude in the Bible. Because he lived longer than anybody what does it say there? Was it 900 and, uh, 969 years? And there's an interesting reason that it puts all of that in there. But Lamech is the first one to have done this. He took a second wife. He already had one wife, and then he took a second one. He was the first polygamist in the Bible. And all along with that, which we talked a little about last time, he said, you know, if somebody kills Cain... He'll get revenge, but I'll get revenge 70 times as much. If anybody messes with me, I'm really going to destroy him, right? And he even says, and I already killed one man just because he offended me. But God is not laying it out here so you can admire him. God is giving it as the first attitude adjustment in the Bible to show us what we are not supposed to be. He was Noah's father, he was Methuselah's son, but he was the first one to depart from the ways of God. We've got on this list here, we've got seven traits of a godly man. Now here's why, you know, to give sermons like this is dangerous. I'm not saying I'm a godly man, but I know what the traits are, right? It's like sermons about humility. Never do that. What's the first thing that happens when you start telling other people how to be humble? You're not, right? So you don't give sermons about certain things. We know what the traits of a godly man are, so we can see it here. The godly man first believes God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Possibly the most famous verse in the entire Old Testament. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Even today, we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in our heart unto salvation. So believing God is the most basic premise of being a godly man. After that, the godly man is obedient to God. Now, we already went over this in the last sermon, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But here's the thing. How in the world could you think that you were a godly man favored by God and not be obedient to God? He's the father. You're the son. You need to sit down and shut up. He's God. We're not. If he makes a rule, do it. 
If you want to argue with them a little about it, sometimes people in the Bible did that. Did not tend to turn out well for folks, frankly. But disobedience is never a good part of your relationship with God. You all had very different kinds of parents, very different kinds of fathers. You loved your fathers. Your fathers loved you. Some of them were extroverts. Some of them were introverts. Some of them showed a lot of love. Some of them didn't show it. But all of them loved you. At the same time with our Father in Heaven, it's the same. Honor your mother and your father goes all the way up to God. If we're not obedient to God, we're not living the right life. So the next one that we get to here, the godly man is faithful to his wife. A lot of you guys don't have a wife yet, but you will. But I want you to understand now, be faithful to your wife through your entire life. It is required of you by God. It will not always be incredibly easy, but it will always be required. We've got examples of this in the Bible, and they're the same kind of examples as Lamech. They're bad examples to teach us good things. Bad example. Do you know how many people in the Bible were not good at being married? Now, we're talking the fathers of the faith, right? We're talking the big names. Jacob, you know, he married this one girl he liked, but they fooled him and made him marry the sister. So then he married both of them. And then they had, he got the, you know, the 12 tribes came from him, but from four different ladies. It's a mess. It's a nightmare. And all of his life was tracked and dehabilitated by the fact that he had more than one wife. All the bad stuff came from it. Measure it out. That's where it comes from. Then you've got Abraham. Everything was fine as long as he was walking with God. But after a while, he started to not trust God because God promised him a son and the son didn't come on time. So, you know, he gets with his wife and then they get with the handmaiden and they have this other son. And God says, that's not the son that I promised you. I don't know where this son came from. And he goes back and finally he has the real son. And these two sons battle each other through history because he had them from different women. And so the most egregious sin in Abraham's life also comes from not having pure and undiminished fidelity to his wife. David, Bathsheba, kids are here. We'll talk about it another time. Okay. <laughs> Moses, several wives, but only one at a time, considered godly in his relationships with women, even by God himself in the Psalms and in the laws of God. Frankly, he lived to be 140. Some of his wives passed away. He remarried. There was a huge fight between him and his brother and his sister over this lady that he married, right? But God approved it. So when we get down to these things, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It says specifically, if you are not treating your wife right, your relationship with God, your prayers, will be hindered. Hey, uh... Are we saved by our good works or are we saved by grace? grace? By grace. By grace alone or grace and some other stuff? Grace alone. But if you continually live a life that's offensive to God, will he not correct you? Is he a good father or is he an absentee landlord? Being blessed in this life is in some ways contingent upon obedience to God and living a life that pleases him. We don't want to put too much weight on that because every once in a while you get a person in the Bible that lived a life that was continually holy to God and they lived a tragic and painful life, right? We don't want to imply that they had sin because they did not, right? 
And every once in a while you get like Ecclesiastes and you get all these guys that are totally messing up. They have no regard for God or other people and everything just goes great for them. That's the major complaint of Solomon in Ecclesiastes is why do the wicked seem to thrive all around me all the time? You're not the first one to ask that question. God has his answers for it. But the question gets asked, but the general rule is to be blessed in this life, you walk with Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, let the marriage bed be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, you've got a lot of different ways that people take verses like that. I take it as talking about Christians. You might think to yourself, well, nobody that's a Christian. You know, Christians will do just about anything given the opportunity. You've got all kinds of sins. How many have you not committed? You can probably count them on one hand. What are you going to do with David? Right? Man after God's own heart says it explicitly in the Bible. Still had a few sins to contend with. Number four, the godly man is faithful to his family. Now, in our theology, I'm going to say something else that's incredibly unpopular here. The man is the head of his house. What God has given to that family, he has given to that man. God's going to hold him accountable for what he does with them, but they're his. They came from his body, and they're his. But still, he has a duty, just like any Christian in any situation has a duty with your responsibilities that have been given to you. You have a duty of faithfulness. Adam had a duty of faithfulness with just the garden. How much more if God gives you children to raise in the fear and the knowledge of God? And if it is evil in your eyes, serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Carrying down our faith from our fathers thousands of years ago till today is a constant duty that's contingent upon every person. I know there's this tendency to say, well, let's not, you know, give the kids our faith. Let's let them find their own way. Well, Christian has a duty to give his children their faith to the best of his ability. We all know that there may come a time when they walk away from it. That happened in the Bible all the time. God understands it and we don't understand his ways. But we have the duty to as much as within our capacity and ability to provide for our children a bedrock for their faith so that they might walk in it. That's why the Bible says, unto a thousand generations of those that love him, but up to four or five generations of those that don't. Because God expects your children to be walking in the faith a thousand generations from now. Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his family, especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Every man has the duty to take care of his people. Now, I don't care how much money you make or how smart you think you are or how good you are at this or how good you are at that. You're supposed to be contributing to the well-being of others. You're supposed to be taking care of your manly business in a manly way. Also, if you have fear, if you have anxiety, if you have doubt, if you have depression, if you're doing the things you're supposed to do, I find that most of those things go away pretty quick. A man has to have things to do. You've been given the entire world. You're supposed to go out and take dominion over it and do what you can. I would never doubt a man who had a job digging ditches as long as he dug those ditches to the glory of God, right? Honest work, honest labor pleases God, and it takes care of the family. But men have to do it. Next page. 
1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. When God has the opportunity, through the Apostle Paul, to tell us what to do with our wives, he says, he says love your wives. Why does he command us to do something so obvious? Because we are not an obvious people. We need to be told obvious things and obvious words so that we do these things. Kindness and gentleness and love within that relationship between a man and a woman cultivate all of the attributes of a good marriage. We never treat our wife like we treat the guys, right? I'm, I'm sorry to say, it's, it's just saying, we don't treat ladies like we do men. It's totally different. I didn't, I, you know, I grew up with four brothers. My mother had seven brothers. Excuse me, I, I had three brothers. Uh, but there were four of us. And then God decided to play a little trick on me. I've got four girls. None of my instincts or skills work properly at all under that. Well, I mean, what do guys do when their boys messing up? You know? You know, and the boys go, and we understand exactly what each other is saying. You try that with a young lady, you're going to hurt her feelings. She's going to cry. She's going to think daddy doesn't love her. It's so different. You have to be tender with them and you have to be gentle. Well, you have to do the same thing with your wife. You have to build up in her all the things that you want her to be. You have to strengthen her because you have to lead her with gentleness and respect. And even in this, but if a widow has grandchildren or grandchildren, let them first show godliness to their own household and make a return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So everything about your family is something you're supposed to take care of. I know these days we go, we'll just give it to the state, and the state will take care of all of it for us, but it was always the church. The only reason we have to give so much of our income, 40, 50% of our income, to the government to do, is to do the things that we were not doing. That gives everybody the opportunity. And then government swells, and its power swells, and its money swells, and they start to take away more and more of your rights, privileges, and immunities because they're taking care of all your business. They'll take care of you from the cradle to the grave if you'll let them, but you're not going to be free to come here on Sunday. You're going to do what you're told. At that time, you're a serf. You're a slave. You're just a commodity to the state. So those both have to do with this next one. A godly man is faithful in his work. In everything that you do, do it as unto the Lord. Give respect to those to whom respect is due. From Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18, This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days God has given them. Because this is your lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy is their toil. This is a gift from God. They seldom reflect the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with continual gladness of heart. You might think to yourself, well, not me, but think about what God has given you. If he's given you a home, and he's given you a meal, if he's given you food, and he's given you clean water, and he's given you the sunny day, and he's given you the breeze, and he's given you the ability to produce wealth out of your own land or out of your own labor, he has given you a lot. There's this other thing that he tends to give Christians here, and it's very hard if somebody doesn't have it, but there's this other thing. He gives you the ability to enjoy the good things that he's given you, to be happy about what you have. If you're not happy about what you have, pray to God that he gives you the joy to enjoy the things that you do have. Because there are a few things that are more sad than a man who has a lot everywhere around him, and it's never, never enough. 
My kids asked me the other day, you know, what drives guys like Elon Musk, these billionaires? And it's pretty easy to see that one of the things that drives them is all they cared about was money for a long time. Maybe they learned their way through that by the end of their life, but at the beginning of their life, they just wanted to be rich. And if you just want to be rich, I can almost promise you, you will be rich. But if you want happiness and you want family and you want to be strong in the Lord, you're probably not going to end up that rich. Because you've got other things, important things, to do with your time and your money. A godly man is faithful to his country. I know this is a hard one these days. You know, I know a lot of folks can't even put an American flag out on their property because they'll have trouble with the neighbors or somebody will come by and kick over their mailbox and stuff. But whatever country you're born in, God says he put you in that country. You're to respect the king or the president or whoever it is. You're to serve nobly within the country that you're in. You're supposed to love your country. You're supposed to love your flag. You're supposed to have honor and fidelity to the people of that nation. It's a real thing, right? Me and the kids went to that uh, event over at the Lander Center. And uh, it was kind of like a rock concert. And you know I like rock and roll. So. But this guy told a joke. And I'm going to tell you this joke now. I'm going to tell it as if it's not a joke. So I'm telling you it's a joke so you won't get confused. <laughs> there was a police officer. He's in his car. A car goes by at an accelerated rate of speed, and it's swerving back and forth. So he goes and he pulls it over. He pulls over the car, the guy inside. He won't get out of the car. So he starts talking to him. Look, you know, you were swerving. We've got to keep people safe out here. It's not safe if people have been drinking and driving. You know, there's kids out here and stuff. The guy won't get out, so he says to him, uh, look, we're going to do a breathalyzer test, all right? And if you pass, I'll let you go. And the guy says, I, I cannot do a breathalyzer test. He says, why won't you do the breathalyzer test? The guy says to him, I've got acute asthma. If I start trying to do the breathalyzer test, I might have an asthma attack, and I might die. <sighs> Cops are getting a little frustrated. He says, okay. Here's what we'll do. We'll take you over to my car. We'll drive you down to the station. We'll go in and we'll do a blood test, right? And if it comes back clean, I'll drive you back here and you can go on your way. The guy says, I can't do a blood test. He's like, why can't you do a blood test? The guy says, because I've got acute, what's that thing where you bleed? I'm an acute hemophiliac. If you put that thing in my arm, I might bleed out right in front of you and die. I don't want to die. He says, okay, let's do this the old-fashioned way. Just get out of the car. There's a white line down the road. You just put one foot in front of the other, and we'll just walk down the road. And the guy says, no, no, I can't do that. He says, why can't you do that? The guy says, because I'm drunk. <laughs> so now you understand that that has nothing to do with the sermon at all. But, you know, we're all acutely aware of the problems in the country. You still have the duty to love your country, to fight for your country. I love that in our theological tradition, there's never been a pacifist. You go back in the day, they were fighting England, they were fighting France, they were fighting everybody for the freedom to worship God as he has ordained to do. So often states step in and they tell you, you can only worship God like this or you can only worship God like that. All of the other rights that we have are tied up in this right of freedom of worship. 
They even tied together James Madison, of course, was a Presbyterian. And when he wrote the Bill of Rights, he tied in freedom of worship to freedom of speech because he knew those things had to go together. And you lose the freedom of the right to bear arms, you're not going to have speech or worship. I'll go into this more next week, but there's all these places in the Bible where the Bible warns us as Christians to not give up weapons and hope the state will save us. That's an easy route to servitude, to serfdom, to slavery. It took a lot of people's prayers and blood to get us the freedoms that we have and enjoy. We should not give them up easily. Next, the godly man is seeking heaven. From these verses that we're talking about today, all these died in faith. They received not the promises, but saw them before off. He believed them and received them thankfully and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Godly man's focus is not just on the things in the here and now, it's in the next life. When you show up to meet God, and you will, every one of us will have that meeting with him someday. Is it going to be a good meeting or is it going to be really awkward? You have to have your mind set on things to come, that things will perpetuate beyond you to a thousand generations. You have to have your mind on the fact that you're going to have eternal life. And everything you do, every thought, word, and deed that you do in this life, you will have to account for someday. Now, no, none of us are going to walk for free in that, right? Frankly, all of us are going to have a little explaining to do. But we have Jesus Christ, our intercessor on our behalf, who has paid for all of our sins. When we go before God on that day, it will not be before a wrathful judge that is looking for our wanton destruction, but it will be from a temperate father who is accepting us in the beloved on the basis of the grace earned for us in Jesus Christ. Our eyes have got to be on heaven even in this life. You've been listening to Pastor Chris at Grace View Church in South Haven, Mississippi. Reach us at graceviewchurch.org. You can reach us at graceviewchurch.org. If you want to stop laughing and making fun At graceviewchurch.org. Say it. At graceviewchurch.org.